0: Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and thank you, as ever, for joining us. I just had the great pleasure and the honor of talking with Karis Thompson about her recent book called Good Science, The Ethical Choreography of Stem Cell Research. This came out in 2013 with the MIT Press. And this is a book that's not only fascinating, and it's um, fascinating on a number of levels, Um, both in its account of a really crucial and really interesting period of stem cell research in the U.S. and beyond, and also the ways in which scientific research, practice, um, politics, geopolitics, ethical concerns were all enmeshed in producing this moment and producing this research and this work. But it's also just really important In the way that Thompson is proposing a kind of research methodology, the ways that her deep thoughtfulness about her own research methodologies can really inform how we think about our own more broadly. And I don't just mean STS methodologies here. I mean, as you'll hear later on in the interview, research in general. Um, There's some conversations that you'll hear in, in the moments to come and conversations in the book about the relations between and really the entanglements of what we might think of as separate spheres, something that's often considered under the generalized rubric of public or public engagement. And then we often um, pair that with and contrast that with research, right? I mean, I think the book, among other things, really provides a way to think about the mutual constitution of what might be those two poles um, in a way that informs how we think about and practice research in general, not just scientific research and not just stem cell research. It's also providing a really interesting and I think really important um, pathway to the future. And so one of the deep concerns of this book has to do with what good science looks like, what ethical choreography looks like, what a moral universe might look like. Um, and Thompson really takes us into not just what she thinks about these issues, but really what it might look like to responsibly and productively keep these issues in mind when working toward a future mode of practices, not just in how we think about and practice stem cell research, but well beyond. So for all of these reasons, it's a really important book, and I think whether or not you're deeply, fundamentally interested in biomedicine or stem cell research, there's a lot in here to reward a close reading. So I hope you have a chance to get your hands on the book. It's really, really worth it. Um, It's very, very assignable in upper-level undergraduate or graduate-level courses, um, and it really was a pleasure to read. Thanks, as ever, for listening. Um, It's a pleasure to have you guys on board in this New Books and STS journey, and I hope you enjoy the interview to come. I'm here today to talk with Karis Thompson about her book, Good Science, The Ethical Choreography of Stem Cell Research. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Karis, and thanks not only for being here but for producing such a great book. I'm really, really looking forward to talking with you about it today.
1: Thank you. For, thank you for having me, Carla. And um, what an amazing resource this is. I'm glad to learn about it.
0: Great. So let's start as is traditional for the channel by talking a little bit about what brought you to the field. How did you come to work on STS and how did you come to decide to make a professional career in this um, academic field specifically? <laughs>
1: Well, I'm I'm what you might call an accidental academic. Um, I started off in my undergraduate career, which was actually at Oxford University in England, in a, a mixed degree called... Um, psychology, physiology, and philosophy. So sort of wet labs, dry labs, and the library, um, and uh, cutting across the divisions. And in some ways, I've never let go of that. I've always wanted to um, not have to choose between the sciences, social sciences, and humanities. Um, I came into STS um, through a combination of um, my interest in um, healthcare, especially what I what I call healthcare as governance. I grew up in a World Health Organization family and was very, very interested in the way in which medicalization was a kind of way of doing governance uh, in the modern world. Um, And then uh, interests in feminist activism, questions of embodiment, reproduction, and so on. And then a longstanding philosophical and scientific interest in um, the bases of mind and embodiment.
0: Great. I think the more and more people I talk to about um, their work in STS, myself included, the more you hear, right, that most of us actually, I think, found our way into this field um, accidentally or obliquely. It's, it's, I think, one of the things that makes the field so, such a fascinating place to work in. So the book that we are talking about today looks very carefully at the controversy in the U.S., over human pluripotent stem cell research and what you call the ethical choreography in which that research was conducted during um, debates around this issue. And it develops an approach to what the book calls good science. So we're going to talk about um, those issues, I'm sure, over the course of our conversation. But before we get there, can you say a little bit about how you came to this particular project? Where does this book and this book as an object fit within the broader research trajectory that brought you here?
1: Okay, well, I, I think it's it's uh, in some sense a direct follow-on from my um, book, Making Parents, The Ontological Choreography of Reproductive Technologies. Um, so at, at the empirical level, um, the question about human embryonic, it was originally called human embryonic stem cell research, kind of happened out of uh, uh, fertility clinics because they were using leftover embryos for, um, to, from which to derive human embryonic stem cell lines. This was before um, induced pluripotency um, had been discovered and, and developed. Um, so t- to some extent, it happened to my field site. I had been working in reproductive technology clinics, and then certain of those clinics were being asked to um, think about uh talking with their patients and using quote-unquote leftover embryos as feedstock for um, human stem cell research. Um, it was also uh, a, a field in which to continue my uh, inter- interrogations of science and governance, uh, which go- runs through my entire work, <laughs> my entire career. Um, and it was also something that I became I moved from Harvard to Berkeley for family reasons and um, right before the Proposition 71 um, passed in California. And as soon as I arrived, I had been teaching a stem cell course at, at Harvard and right as soon as I arrived, I was getting phone calls and requests and being asked what my opinion was and asked to say things that were supportive of stem cell research. So that got me into thinking about... Who's, what are the views on this? Who stands on which side? And why do certain people assume that I will have a certain view on this? Um, and I think those were the main factors that got me into that field. Having said that, once I got there, ha- being an ethnographer, um, I found I had to completely change my uh, method um, using the, a mixture of observing science in action and clinical practice in action and interviews and, um, wasn't answering the questions I was interested in because the questions I was interested in became... Different over time, and also people were so scripted in what they had to say because of the, the camps on stem cell research that I wasn't getting very interesting data. So I had to make up my method, which would be easier for some people than it was for me. But as an ethnographer, that was a tough one for me. I sort of lost my field site, which sounds a little dramatic, but it was a,
0: <laughs> it was, a, it, was a, it was a bit of an existential crisis for, or a methodological
1: existential crisis if there's such a thing.
0: Now you actually talk about this really interestingly in early on in the book, uh, this transition away from what had been a particular kind of ethnographic research toward a research method that you call triage. Um, so because this is so interesting methodologically and it follows directly from what you were just talking about, can you talk a little bit about that? Um, what are the characters, or what, what was the character of the research methodology that you ultimately um, wound up developing, and how does the notion of triage help inform what that methodology looked like?
1: Yes, um, and actually this is a great time to address that because just, I've just been asked to write something on triage as a method and oh. so I'm currently revisiting it. Um, so it has two um, components for me. One is how to um, gather data when you don't want to fix your scale of research. So you don't want to fix your scale of research to... Um, for example, what you what's perceptually available to you, or verbally available to you in, in interview, or or embodied encounters within a lab or a clinic, um, or in a or a fixed archive, um, and so it has this. It, so then the sense the problem becomes: well, then everything's relevant. How do you decide what data is relevant, particularly today when data is proliferating, and particularly when um, we were writing and i was involved in various minor ways as well in the process we were producing documents so not only was did had i lost the kind of obvious way to domain or to restrict what things were relevant as data but um we were producing new data was evol- was emerging all the time and i had a role in, a minor role in producing some of it so um I took the notion of triage there for um, in the in the sense of having to decide in relation to various kinds of urgency, um, urgency of the question, what you would attend to. So rather than having a field site notion, domaining it, having having a notion of certain kinds of urgency, um, domaining how I would um, appr- approach what data I would use. And then the second half of that is how the notion of triage is actually deployed, um, in the re- quote unquote real world, which is primarily in, um, medical settings and on the battlefield,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, where, um, you sort among things according to, Whether or not you, how important someone is, whether or not you can save them, um, whether they're transportable, um, and so on, according to a a set of criteria that um, that uh, are to do with who lives, what lives, who can be made to live, who's vitally important to keep alive, Um, and that worked very, very well for what I was trying to do in the book, because one of the things I was interested in was um, in, in some ways the the thing that the central question that became the most interesting was why is pro cures so far away in America from health disparities? <laughs> why is everything to do with social justice around healthcare and medicine not at all in the same domain as everything to do with this kind of morally unassailable claim on we're going to save lives by developing this technology um, and so uh, this sense that there, that we an algorithm was operating that made some things come to the fore and made some lives live um, and then uh, but that also meant that in the background other things, other ways of saving lives, other ways of making lives more livable or more flourishing didn't see the light of day. So I developed my bioscapes that were, um, to draw out the ones that, um, that were being emphasized in the package that I, this innovation, um, episteme that, that I talked about. Um, and I also drew out the ones that, um, are, oddly, genealogically, historically to do with American politics and global politics too, um, very hard to make live, to vascularize, to bring to life in the setting of what was going going on around stem cell research.
0: Right. And is this, um, just briefly before we move on to this notion of procures, cures right, in the context for that, is this research methodology, this triage, something that you feel was organic to and rooted in this particular project, and you've moved on from that um, in the research that you're working on now? Or is this a methodology developed here that you've also found useful in the work that you've continued on to do after the book? Um, one thing that I think is has in some ways, uh,
1: it it's very situation-specific. It's very much to do with what I was looking at, and I'll say it in one second, mm-hmm. um, what I mean by that. But in some ways, I think, so the two projects I, I have going at the moment, which I won't talk about now, but one is very, very archival, and it isn't so helpful for that. I'm, I'm very based in, in the uh, historical written record for that project. And another one is more more than usual for me, interview-based, of the two parts of the project I have going at the moment. so um, it, And it's less helpful for both of those two things. Um, But for the object of my inquiry, which was kind of how do we navigate a world in which rather than facts and values being oppositional as we like to think of them in kind of the modern constitution, we were looking at sciences which everybody thinks have ethics and have morals and don't just have ethics as implications, but have ethics in how do you get the material in the lab in the first place? Who do you take it from? Does it, does that person retain any interest in it? Who can get rich off this? When is it a donation? What's done with it in the, in the lab and what's okay to do with things? When is it a person and so on and so forth. So um, they were, they these are topics that um, everybody thinks are scientific and ethical at every layer of the of the onion, as Donna Haraway would say, nobody thinks that there, there's anything optional about the ethics or the science science in this field um, and but the thing about ethics is that um, of course there are many other traditions in other parts of the world that I don't know about but of the in the traditions that I'm schooled in you know there are three very very different kind of Perspective, broad perspectives on ethics. One is you know, rules-based or deontological, um, where you're really going for basic principles. You're going for things like thou shalt not kill or whatever it might be. Um, one is more utilitarian or consequentialist. We want to have these outcomes come to be. And then another one is very situated. It's very much to do with what are people's local meanings, what's happening to their bodies and their lives and their economies at the moment, and really looks at what's happening in their situated worlds. These are Empirically, happening in really different places. So, if you want to say, as I did, "Gosh, the ethical choreography here was a real hodgepodge," as is, in some sense, obvious. It would be in America of consequentialism, deontology, and local moral worlds situated. Get how do you get the stuff into the lab? For example, Um, you need a method that is scale and site independent Um, and having that method that's scale and site independent in that way is making me more aware as I go on looking at phenomena I'm interested in of of things like that elsewhere and given my deep interest in the economy, um, it's really useful there as well. So it is having some knock-on effect.
0: Great, thank you. So let's actually move on um, into the body of the work to explore some of the the notions that have actually just come up in this really, I think, lucid and very helpful explanation of this methodology that you've just shared with us. So one of the first things perhaps to get on the table is this notion of ethical choreography. Um, So you just mentioned it as part of your comments, but um, since this is such a focal point of the kind of argumentative work that the book is doing, and listeners might not otherwise be familiar with the notion Can you talk briefly about what that means for you? What is ethical choreography specifically doing um, in terms of the work that you're doing with the book here? Yes. So um, I wanted something that
1: resonated with ontological choreography, which was a subtitle for my first book. It's a bit of a silly. And in some ways, I. I haven't made my peace with the term choreography. I did quite a lot of dance when I was younger. Um, but it does. for some people, it implies either something more playful than I mean or something more with a single choreographer than I mean. But what I wanted was how do you get different kinds of things to march in step with each other. So instead of there being a mind-body problem, that there are any number of any kinds of, you know, an economy ethics problem, a mind-body problem, a, a brain um, a nervous system, Problem, any number of those kinds of different, you know, uh, uh, individual values. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, getting to the clinic on time, bureaucratic problem. That there are any number of these kind of ontological problems that I had been interested in before, and here I wanted to say, how do you get in a field that where everyone is talking about its ethics, which was human embryo- embryonic stem cell research. And which was, insofar as it was being talked about ethically, it was pitting... Two different ethical positions, one against another, was pitting, on the one hand, everything that's that's derived from the abortion debate in America, things that are cathected, you might say, around the abortion debate, which was this idea that people would make and then voluntarily destroy embryos, um, which is quite, as it circulates in in the American context, is quite a deontological set of ideas, this idea that really you shouldn't take a human embryo, which has life, is life itself, or has life potential. Many people agree on that. Um, that you, if you, um, if you, if you derive, if you um, take the inner cell mass and derive a human embryonic stem cell line from it, that your that your note that life potential is no longer persisting, and so that's why you ought not to do it. And on the other hand, this idea that well, we're talking about embryos that are no no longer have reproductive potential, they are quote unquote leftover or supernumerary, but we could give life perhaps in a similar way that an organ donor might give life to somebody who's very, very ill and in some way redeem what's had a terrible accident or something that's happened to them that makes their organs available. Um, So that these embryos can be brought back into life by saving somebody and saving somebody by by coming up with cures, by producing scientific knowledge that will lead to cures um, is also a very, very ethical thing to do. I wanted to see how you do research in a deadlock around those issues on the one hand so how do you choreograph those two positions together how do you operationalize ways around that Um, I also wanted to avoid I, I have my own position but I wasn't interested in my own position on it and I didn't want to be arguing one side or the other I very much didn't want to be doing. I wanted to talk about what is a, what are the ethics and how do they work in a society that contains both those things? Um, So what, so I looked at the things that I thought were most important around those. So the red state, blue state, um, the fact that the federal government has various restrictions. It had the George W. Bush restriction on where I start the book on the, on um, human embryonic stem cell research on using anything except the so-called presidential lines um and um the uh, how do you put so how, how do you uh, so how do you get so at that point, we, the federal government, was. it also has the, the uh, Dickie Wicker Amendment, and there are various reasons why it's quite hard to get federal money <laughs> for anything that's to do with embryos. Um, so there's a federal state. So some of the blue states could act alone. California, many of the states had stem cell initiatives happening in this point. California was particularly ready for it because of all things to do with its own history, the Silicon Valley, um, the bio-silico interface that's being worked on, California exceptionalism there are all sorts of historical narratives that make California ripe for this, as well as its extraordinary, vaguely populist but um, proposition pro- political process that it has. So it was, and 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 its profound belief, in some sense, in California, in trickle down innovation, in trickle down in a trickle down economy. That if you just innovate, you there there that growth isn't something that's finite. Growth is something that you can always regenerate. Um, there you get that wonderful metaphor of regeneration. So I so I so I looked at the state at the state federal. I looked at the blue red, blue red doesn't work perfectly because some of the blue states, the more labour states, are very productive labour oriented, so tend not to have the reproductive labour. Anyway, there are various reasons why none of them work perfectly, but they're all very very important to how the ethics circulate. And so I wanted to see how do you get a stem cell line into a lab, and basically. What they did to operationalize that was they um, focused on, on um, making sure that the, that the procurement um, fit various kinds of principles that came to be called acceptably derived. And acceptably derived meant that they had been consented properly that they came from appropriate stem cell clinic, uh, appropriate reproductive clinics that they really were in excess to reproductive projects, um, and that they had all the various um, committee approvals in place. Um, so in some sense, it sort of checked the ethics at the door through getting this procurement process
0: right. Great. Now, the second chapter of the book actually really wonderfully brings us into a lot of these issues that you've been mentioning. So this is a chapter that looks at stem cell research as it's widely understood to engage ethical concerns and brings us into this procurial frame, um, as you call it, by taking us into the context of California's Proposition 71, as you've mentioned. This is the California Research and Cures Act, um, and you talk about the importance of this act and the, sort of, the kind of context um, that it produced for thinking through and thinking with these issues, both in terms of place, right, in terms of the particular um, kind of geography uh understood broadly, right, with geography um, in its most capacious sense of California and also the particular locality in time in which this was happening. So you call um, the kind of particular period of time that the book um, is looking at um, in various ways in the book, but you um, use the term the end of the beginning of human pluripotent stem cell research. And so this becomes a marker for how to think about the particular temporal locality um, in which uh, the study is taking place as well. Now, the beginning of stem cell research in the U.S. corresponded with another beginning, and this is the beginning of what you call the post-9-11 period. This is really, really interesting. And so um, could you talk a little bit about the importance of or the significance of this correspondence of these two beginnings? Sort of what are the implications for you um, that come out of the work in the book um, that are perhaps important about the fact that what's going on here was happening in the context of the beginning of the post 9/11 period. Um like if at all, you know, if you think that's at all.
1: Yes, I mean I, I think
0: it's it's something that I,
1: I could have developed more than I did. It was, it they were bookending events in part because In my particular case, they were literally happening together. I think I I tell the tale of how I was interviewing for my seminar on stem cell research, literally as the Twin Towers were falling um, and how it turned from being something that was just we were discussing, um, you know, life's these life saving potential, these ethical life saving potential to these necroscapes of the new world order. Literally, people were crying in my office and we were running down to watch it on these large screens. Um, I talk about the um, way that the uh, that the um, broader federal politics play out in the stem cell research Um, and the way that the global politics a little bit play out too, but f- not from the perspective so much of global politics, which perhaps I could have done, but more from the way in which the federal and state politics framed the global. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, so there were phases where um, they, th- there was a, a phase at the beginning of the, of the um, controversy around stem cell research in the beginning shortly after the passage of prop 71 where um people were there was a lot of rhetoric of which was much overplayed of brain drain to on the one hand the uk and on the other hand east asia and southeast asia singapore south korea um, britain um and uh there was also so there was and that, that became a kind of moral panic that we're going to get behind in this stem cell research. We're going to let innovation go abroad <laughs> um, and letting in, innovation go abroad always is part of. Sort of the economy, but also the unspoken um, security uh, uh, part side of national security. So I think um, people were very susceptible to these ideas of brain drain, even though it wasn't it wasn't a geopolitics that was directly implicated in the emergence of the of the nine right. eleven
0: um,
1: landscape.
0: Yeah. Now this kind of concern, um, I think that you raise at the end of chapter two, which constitutes the end of the first part of the book. Right, and this first part of the book lays out the foundations of the argument, it explores early attention to the embryo debate and um, really kind of makes us understand how this early conversation generated lots of innovation, lots of innovative ethical thinking specifically, um, but also kind of solidified around norms that we're going to see the consequences of later on in the book as we consider this moment in time and specifically consider, and you raise here um, at the end of chapter two, and I'll just mention it for listeners rather than going into too much detail, um, you raise the issue of the, that there's a particular kind of ethical choreography um, that's necessary given this particular moment in time, right, in this confluence of these two kinds of beginnings or beginnings or endings of beginnings or beginnings of endings. Um, there's a particular notion and definition of good science um, that can emerge and sort of grow out of um, careful contemplation of this kind of ethical choreography and we might talk about that a little bit later right what good science looks like here is not necessarily what readers might come to the book assuming right that good science um, looks so you're proposing a very particular model here. Um, But you mentioned already this issue of brain drain, right? And the particular transnational or internationalism of this debate. And this, I think, takes us really nicely into the second part of the book. Now, the second part looks at what happened domestically as the debate over stem cells moved from federal to state levels and back in the context of the U.S. And then it turns to consider carefully transnational circuits that were crucial to the development of these practices and these conversations. And that will bring us into specifically on the kinds of contexts you alluded to just before, Singapore, South Korea. But first, um, you talk here about, um, in Chapter 3, the kind of phases, the temporalities, but also the ways that the temporalities um, of this early stage mapped or can be mapped out in terms of the policies adopted by President Bush, Um, the kind of period where California's Prop 71 embodied an attempt to, you know, scare quotes here, secede, right, from those policies by certain states, and then the period around Obama's policy. And you characterize the Bush era um, with his 2001 policy as a kind of dignity ethics. Um, With Obama's 2009 policy and the environment around that, as a kind of deliberative ethic. So there's a really interesting kind of geopolitics here um, and a, a attentiveness to the politics surrounding um, these debates. Now, you talk about what it was like working in the aftermath of Prop 71, especially as it shaped your own experience developing, developing a curriculum at Berkeley for a California Institute for Regenerative Medicine funded group of students. So since this is a really interesting moment where you directly engage your own experience um, as part of the choreography of these events, can you uh, talk about that for you? um, What's what's particularly important for us to understand about how your um, engagement and involvement in developing a curriculum, right, and sort of um, experimenting with some of these ideas informed how you were thinking about these issues in the book and um, yeah so for you what's um, most interesting and important about that experience as it shapes what's happening here I wonder
1: if I could just go back for a minute to um, the procurial economy, uh, just so that I can um, explain where I was coming from for the curriculum stuff. Yeah, please. So the three elements that I was working on in the procurial economy were the ones that um, emerged around something that was much bigger than stem cell research and that I was noticing was happening on campus. Um, out, not just on our campus, but in many campuses, um, actually in many parts of the world, but quite, quite um, very, very notably here. Some people um, date it to um, the passage of Baidol, um and uh, various other things, which is this moment where the word innovation became increasingly synonymous with the word research, So that um, innovation—the idea of coming up with something um, new—which is a very kind of garage science—I know know garage science today sounds, in the the light of gentrification, doesn't it? Sounds like, hey, hang on, that's someone's home. That's not garage science. But but this sort of idea of um, what what's really going on and driving driving our society and driving our brain work, our knowledge work in the society is innovation. So that you could sit in um, in a, a meetings, faculty meetings and things where you're deciding on the value of someone's work with this without really much distinction between what research might be and what innovation might be. Um, And innovation has at its heart, I think, this idea of, of in the biomedical field, what's called bench to bedside. This idea that basic science in some sense connects up to things that are in your personal lives that are in clinics, that are in the real world and that are capitalized um, and uh, what I and so this what I wanted to um, pay attention to was how this ethical thing of this ethical battle around stem cell research pushes its way through and in and becomes a case study for this innovation economy. And the way that I, that I came to see that as happening was it through this thing that I came to call procurial because of not coincidentally, the the um, repeating of this sense of cures. So it's components where on the one hand procures, which is this idea that you can appeal to absolutely anyone um by the with the idea that you what you're looking for is to cure people. And absolutely everyone will agree that that's a good use of public funds, including that's a good use of public funds for value chains that will be privatized by the time they get to the business world. So taxpayers will fund it. But the taxpayers will own, will primarily see re- returns in terms of trickle down, in terms of economic activity in the state that's privatized. Um, and procures is obviously very moral. It's a, it's a you know yes, of course you want to do this. Then through this idea of procurement, that we have to focus an enormous amount on how we get cells into the lab and out of the lab and through the translational pipeline. So this um, this. Being, having to track in a way that you don't just have waste tissue and you don't just have anonymized cell lines anymore, having to focus a lot ethically regu- in net regulatory terms in terms of material transfer agreements and... In all and scientifically as well, um, with procurement at all stages, and then the enormous explosion of curatorial, bio-curatorial practices around that, around tracking and information storage, and so on. So that was that was those were the sort of economic um, components that um, we were talking that I that I looked at to see how this thing that was very very. Um, Uh, It was having all this ethical choreography. How it was getting given an overarching ethics, which was this pro-cures, and and giving an an overarching economy, which was this innovation one. Um, So, what seemed most missing to me from that was um, the all the other moral. imperatives around um, saving lives and making lives more livable as well as cures. So everything to do with prevention and care, as well as things to do with cures that um, were social rather than than scientific um, would get lost in this and then everything in the economic end that's redistributive would get lost in this so everything about well if the taxpayers are paying for this research shouldn't the um, all the fruits of the research be, um, be accessible and affordable and shouldn't they be shared equally and shouldn't um, the health of the people in some sense be a very important set of criteria so all the Curriculum innovation that I worked on was really to try to bridge that gap. Um so um I the two big things I did was I, I was one of the um two people who put together the Toward Fair Cures conference um at which took place at the um uh, Oakland um Children's Research Hospital um in Oakland uh and we we looked at how you can get issues to do with social justice and redistribution to be significant around something that's considered as innovation, considered as something that would go up the translational private property route. Um, and then the fellows, uh, uniquely in California, Berkeley, for just for three years, our program um, with um, – me and a committee that i was allowed to appoint at the berkeley stem cell center i was a pi for for the for the lc for the social science stuff um was uh, we were allowed to have social science fellows and over the 3 years um we appointed um one in um who was doing comparing ethics in East Asia with ethics around stem cell research in East Asia with ethics um, around stem cell research in quote unquote the West? Um, and then we had one. In fact, Ruha Benjamin was, who was also my student, um, who wrote the book People's the People's Science on stem cell research. Um, she's now an assistant professor at Princeton. Um, who. Uh, uh was looking into ways in which uh, minorities would were or were not involved in um what was a populist proposition how did they, how did they um come how did they um, fair under this uh, this proposition, um, and then, in the third year, we had somebody who was doing um, performance work theater and performance work around issues to do with um, stem cells regeneration cloning, and so on how How do you interface with the arts around these topics um, at the, at the other level of um, – another topic that the term was important to me in terms of um, curriculum building was to move beyond the ELSI model. So ELSI uh, is still the dominant model, I have to say. Um, it's, it stands for Ethical, Legal and Social Implications, and it, it came to fame with the Human Genome Project – uh, got 3% of that funding uh, in the United States. I know the Hugo, the European version, got 7% of that funding. Um, the problem with that is that it, it says which fields are relevant to, um, to uh, these kind of social science and humanities embedding, so ethical, legal, and social. Um, and also it has that final eye, which is the idea of implications, um, which suggests that you do the science and then the shit hits. Sorry, excuse me. Maybe I can't say that. <laughs> no, you can <laughs> so, absolutely. But it's, it's downstream in some way. So wanting to resist that it being downstream, um, and also wanting to say that there was there's more than ethical, legal, and social. So because Elsie, in fact, was the name of my grandmother, so it was a sort of quaint Victorian <laughs> name. I I thought I'd take another elderly relations name, Elspeth, um, and talk more about economics. Um, legal, social, philosophical, um, ethical, um, theological, and historical. And to me, the historical dimension, so I, I I don't do any work that begins before the end of the Second World War, but I'm very historical in my orientation, partly because of having been in Harvard's History of Science Department, having my dissertation chair, be a historian, and so on. The genealogical, why do some countries do things some way or other in my mind, can't be understood unless you're, you're historical about it. So I wanted to move from Elsie to Elspeth, and I wanted to just scrap the word implications because the whole idea of procurement was that it was upstream, midstream, and downstream that you needed to think about the ethics. And then finally, I wanted—sorry, this is a very long answer about—no, no, Finally, so I wanted to move from what's called pus to what's called piss. So that's another set of bad puns of bodily substance but pus for those people who have done any science policy stands for public understanding of science and public understanding of science is a very sort of patrician and paternalistic idea that there's science and then there's the the uneducated masses and basically the way you get the public to buy the science that you're doing for their benefit is by educating them Um, you overcome resistance by educating them, you get engagement by educating them and so on. And this seemed to me not only, you know, problematic for all the reasons to do with kind of paternalism and this kind of false opposition between science and society, but also because I thought we actually aren't aren 't in that moment anymore um, you know public uh, the who is the public in America, who the public is is incredibly hard to say mm-hmm. the public is clearer in some nations than it is in America, um, but also this this science wasn 't particularly public we we 're funding the quote unquote basic science, but a lot of it is unquestioningly being privatized, so it seemed to me we really needed to trouble that p in public understanding. Uh, we need to trouble the understanding relation with, with members of the public because um, it's too, it's two-way. It, it seemed that the public themselves and their needs weren't being very well represented or understood and that people's local expertises, especially around care, weren't being very well incorporated or understood. Perspectives from disability justice movement and from health disparities movement and so on weren't being well incorporated Um, especially in this age of, you know, yawning inequality. Um, And uh, so I really wanted to, instead of public understanding of science, move to public-private, and I wanted to change the understanding to implication in. um, Finally, because it was um, people's, bits of people's bodies, bits of people's bodies that were starting, that were needing to get into these labs. Um, uh, And in the beginning, when um, eggs and embryos were being needed, it was bits of uh, gendered bodies where the toll in particular on women's bodies around the request for egg donation uh, was particularly, particularly demanding. Um, so I wanted to change those, you know, Elsie and Puss to Elspeth and, Elspeth and Piss. <laughs> so, yeah, that, think- uh, those were
0: my main I think that's great. And I think the move from Puss to Piss is also a really useful way of thinking about the, what we're doing right now at this moment in talking over Skype and producing a podcast, right? I mean, I think there's a lot of conversation for any of us, um, or there's a lot of emphasis for any of us who work in academia and apply for funding for various things or, you know, go up for promotion and tenure, you know, basically kind of engage in activities that anatomize yourself and your career for the purpose of higher-ups of various sorts um, marking a sample of approval or not there 's a lot of emphasis on um, these kind of new media that are emerging like podcasting etc, as being part of you know what 's often called research dissemination right? Yes. sort of like public understanding of blah 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 blah, and I think moving more toward like from pus to piss right <laughs> from like more toward a piss model um, of sort of the you know taking into account and acknowledging and celebrating the ways that public engagement and and private engagement, whatever that looks like. Um, is really integrally part of the research process through the production and, um, you know, kind of generation of media like this is, is actually a really useful way to think about not just, I think, the context of science and the practices of science, but also perhaps research more broadly. So I think that's a, um, a way... This is to say, that I think that what you're suggesting here perhaps has much broader implications than just um, a kind of science studies context, and maybe a useful way for us to think about the media of and the sort of choreography of research life more generally. Thank you. That's yeah, really interesting. So you mentioned um, a number, of, or we've talked a little bit about a number of ways in which your own um, research shaped what's going on here. And we've talked about your experience. Oh, no, very minimal. <laughs> uh, oh, no, no, no. I, but your experience with curriculum development and, and et cetera, uh, etc. And there's lots of other things we could talk about. But one of the things that comes up in the next chapter that's very much a part of this, it's also something I'd love to hear more about, is your experience actually going to South Korea and Singapore to look into different um, Different laboratory contexts. And so this is this is happening in a chapter, chapter four, that looks at transnational geopolitics of stem cell research. And you look at the ways, among other things, that there's a kind of rhetoric of East and West that's developed um, in this period with a contrast between a kind of East in scare quotes. That was supposed to have a pro-science spirit and a lack of concern with the moral status of the embryo, and a you know scare quotes West that had been taken over by you know anti-science religious fanatics and technophobes. And all of these characterizations are you know broad brush. It's much more complicated and interesting than that. Um, But you actually traveled in 2005 to Singapore and South Korea um, to kind of look at what some of the differences and similarities were um, to inform this larger conversation and understanding about um, the sites of this kind of research and the ethical and moral choreographies thereof. So because this is so interesting, can you talk a little bit about that? And and just generally speaking, I'll just throw the ball back to you. Um, What, for you, were some of the most interesting ways that these visits... Informed and transformed how you were thinking about localities of stem cell research and this larger set of um, issues of um, internationalism and, and nationalism yes, thank you yeah I was lucky lucky enough to go
1: to South Korea in two thousand and five and again in two thousand and eight and to Singapore um, during the first trip as well um, and I got to teach a biopolitics course, mini mini course, at uh, Yonsei, which was was very interesting, and give a talk a day while in Seoul. Um, the and tour uh, Biopolis and tour Hwang Woo Suk's lab as well while I was in South Korea and Biopolis in Singapore. Um, so one of so during the Bush era, which it was at the time, um, when this this rhetoric of um, brain drain was flourishing, uh, we also had the Huang Wusuk scandal. And the Huang Wusuk scandal, um, you, you probably remember, was the um, claim by Huang Suk, who was a um, scientist at Seoul National University. Where I also gave a talk to um, have uh, succeeded in um, creating patient-specific um, stem cell lines—the uh, sort of holy grail of, um, of what was going to be you know, um, precision medicine for uh, regenerative <laughs> medicine. Um, anyway, it turned out that there was um, two, that it was uh, it, it was uh, it had not. It was. It was not true. It hadn't happened. Um, there, there was a. There was a scandal behind it. But um, uh, at the time, it seemed very threatening. It seemed like a bit, both seemed wonderful for science. But it seemed like it was being, the the kind of center of innovation was moving away from the U.S. And that somehow got concatenated with um, the idea that. Uh, that uh, the in the US, a religious um, minority was was stopping us being the, um, leaders in innovation and in science, and so in some ways, this idea that ethics was standing in the way. Um, when I toured uh, Huang Wusuk's lab, so this was before the scandal had broken. Although I have to say that. Um, I met with some of the feminists who were already um, talking about the problems with egg donation um, that people had been uh, kind of coerced into um, giving their eggs um, and that the account of the supposedly few eggs it took to derive these these, these lines um, were, was not true that more eggs had been taken and that junior members of labs had been if not explicitly then implicitly under pressure to do the donations women members. Um, so there were there were already things were already going on um Myself, I was quite uh, pleased to see a decentering of this. side of this of some of the most crass stereotypes of there. There's you know everything. Everything starts in the West and then the East is followers. Which you're a historian of China, so you know this is not true. But it, it can come to seem true when you're stuck in a very small period of time and the rhetoric um, proliferates. Um, but uh, going touring the lab, it was really other kinds of things that really struck me. So what struck me about um, Huang was lab was um, how much of an artisanal model it was. So people were there were stations of the of the preparation and derivation of stem cell lines that were that were staged across the layout of the lab. And we only toured. We didn't tour the human side. We only toured the animal side. And we had to go in through a safety lock to get in. We had to be all gowned up and kitted up. Um, And uh, people spent sort of six months at each stage before moving on to the rest. And there was a lot of rhetoric of kind of, Um, kind of a pastoral that I think I talk about that, you know, Koreans have these heavy chopsticks they use, these metal chopsticks that were really, really good with our fingers and uh, you have to get really good to be able to do this science. So you spend six months here and when you're good you move on to the next stage. So it was an artisanal model that I had seen very little of in the US um, and in other countries where where I've worked. But another thing that was really dramatic about it, well two other things, one is that they were using every single country where you go to labs, they use the the animal um, gametes and embryos, um, gametes um, from animals that are available in that country. Um, so, and they use model species that are historically available in that country. So, another way in which history becomes important to the feedstocks of science. Um, but uh, the science diasporas were also really interesting. So, there were people. There were people training in Huang Wusuk's lab who were from um, Southeast and South Asia which I thought was, you know, again, we, talk, we like to talk a lot about these wild swans. We talk about the Koreans who come to the U.S. to um, get their, their tertiary education. Um, but there were, there, were the, there were these other intra-quote-unquote East um, diasporas that were going on. It was very, very interesting, I thought, about what's happening in science more generally. Um, and uh, similarly in Biopolis, uh, the idea that there was somehow an East was just ridiculous because uh, it couldn't have been more different in some ways. Huang Wu su became a very charismatic figure um, in, in Korea and so the fall was really really dramatic um, and uh, he's subsequently become associated with this pet cloning business and so on that's a whole story unto itself. But Biopolis in Singapore which was the other kind which was the kind of place of the brain drain fear. And that's where people were getting these expat salary appointments. And and, uh, whereas South Korea was more nationalist, um, Singapore was, you know, as it does in finance, positing itself as extremely internationalist with this two tier salaries of higher salaries for these international superstars. Um, and this kind of city-state, um, one degree north um, dynamism that it was. It was um, seeing seeing um, the bioeconomy is absolutely core to its economic plans as a city-state. And the layout of the lab, the layout of Biopolis, was very kind of total institution-y. You could get your hair cut there, your laundry done, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, there were um, these skywalks joining the different different buildings. Some of the buildings were state funded. Some were um, Corporations, it was all melded up in, together in this sort of private and public capital um, uh, kind of investment in this new area of economic activity and the part that i that i was that I toured um, they had different lab facilities depending on who they were trying to attract, so they have one entire room zebrafish because of where because it 's one degree north and the waters that it, that it sits on. Um, were, were being used as a model species, and they had one entire enormous lab. And at this point, it was still relatively unpopulated. That was done on the German scheme and one lab that was done on the U.S. scheme. And that meant the difference between what you held constant, to what you held standard in breeding these zebrafish, so as to get the control conditions for your experiment. So, so it couldn't have been more different in some ways from emphasizing Koreans and chopsticks <laughs> to emphasizing, well, if you'd like to do it a German way, go in this lab, if you like to do it an American way, go in this lab and come and have this wonderful salary, and we 'll repatriate you twice a year and It was just a very, very different setup, and the idea that somehow there was a thing called the East that the West was losing to because of its religion. Mm-hmm. seemed very, very problematic, especially in an era where um, another sort of civilizational war was going on, a rat that was getting elided in all kinds of problematic ways with quote-unquote terrorism.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you. I think that's a really um, interesting and important and useful um, chapter for us to keep in mind. So I think uh, listeners who are particularly interested in this and all of the issues that you've been raising, which again I'll just say, state, and you know, as someone who works on China, maybe I'm a little bit biased, but I think this is particularly interesting for us right now um, and I really loved that chapter, chapter four. And so we, I, we don't have time to talk about the entirety of what's fascinating about the third part of the book. Um, this is a part of the book that focuses on research subjecthood and it entails Two chapters that are both um, really worth an hour, at least a piece. Um, so chapter five, what I'm going to do is just kind of briefly encapsulate chapter five and then move on to chapter six. Um, and, we, you know, you can kind of jump in if there's anything that you want to really elaborate before we move on to animals um, and what you're doing in chapter six. But chapter five looks at a context context. Um, in which a number of norms, right, at crucial moments here, are coming under scrutiny and scrutiny um, in a new way. So the norms, and you take us through these of altruism, anonymity, the alienation of tissue from donors, and this re-encounter with these norms is leading to the conclusion in this chapter that an old model for thinking about donation and reciprocity just kind of isn't working. And so you take us through four models, among other things, in California that. We're rethinking or we're kind of available for rethinking the relationships between donor, recipient and biomaterial or bio information in this context um, and th- those include models of open consent, of propertization, of benefit sharing um, and of in kind reciprocity and you end the chapter by talking about your own work as a kind of version of a model of in kind reciprocity so for listeners who are particularly interested in the ways that notion. Of what it means to donate, um, right? The kind of valuation of what's happening here, um, issues of gift exchange, of public um, and private, um, how those are shaping what's happening in this story, are going to find a lot of really fascinating material in Chapter 5. But there's also a chapter um, that's kind of close to my heart in part because it deals with the issue of animals, and this is Chapter 6. Chapter 6 looks at what you call the substitutive research subject, and it opens up a way of thinking about both the history and contemporary practice of using animals as substitutive research subjects and proposes a way of thinking about how we might move away from considering and using animals as substitutive research subjects and move toward what you call um, a use of in vitro systems or an in vitro model. So I think it's best um, for me to just hit the ball back to you now and ask you to talk about this. Can you talk for listeners about um, really these three components? What is a substitutive research subject? Um, how and how do we think about or what would it mean to practically move from considering and using animals um, to using in vitro systems, um, what might it, these in vitro systems look like and how far away might we be from actualizing that goal of moving from animals to in vitro systems? So here you go. Here's the ball. I'm handing it to you. <laughs> Thank you.
1: So um, the, this, yeah, as you say, this whole section is on this idea of, subject, of research subjecthood and the first chapter is sort of on ways in which um, consent and donation Legacies are are under threat at the moment, particularly around this idea that of the bioeconomy. So, if you, if the the higher up the value chain, uh, vast amounts of money can be made, uh, and the economy is going to depend on it. What then happens to donation or solidarity? And why are we putting so much effort into trying to get the get people to donate? that unilaterally those people people are supposed to be donating what control ought we to have over our tissues especially given that tissues now because of bioinformation don't remain anonymous um, at what how do we rethink that so as you say that's what that that whole thing is about um, and that was quite an active set of debates and people put forward different different um, models during during this time period so it was a very good um, triage example because it was really happening while I was writing about it and um, the animal chapter um starts off as you say I started so rather than going into it straight away by animals um uh, I went into it through this idea of substitutive research subject which is um this idea of how to be more ethical you you don't do experiments so particularly coming out at the end of the second world War um, with the Nuremberg statements about, so on, how it how you move away from um, doing risky, dangerous things in vulnerable people, um, the idea that if you experiment in animals that's much more ethically acceptable. Now that is so embedded in our biomedical and research ethics people have um committee you know the committees the way that committees are on campus now there are these embryonic stem cell research committees as well but we have you know animal care and use committees it's very interesting that it's called care and use by the way and then human subjects research committees so every kind of research subject has its own committee it's really really standardized um, it's also the case that we've, we've epistemologically, not just regulatory, bureaucratically embedded this substitution of animals for humans into our um, society. So for many, many kinds of, of um, scientific protocol to p- prove that something works, to have proof of principle, to prove that an assay is working, for all kinds of things, it has to be demonstrated in animal bodies. Mm-hmm. So getting rid of so, moving away from, um, from substituted research subjects um, isn't easy, it's hard. I also wanted to make an equation with the ways in which we increasingly use vulnerable people around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, for whom it makes ethical sense because it's a kind of a living. Note that word, making a living, in which biopolitics and the economy come together again, um, to put their own bodies on the line for surrogacy, for clinical research. Of course, they're very coerced. There's all kinds of issues to do with commodification and things. But nonetheless, as a fundamental. Um, rationality to it, which um, has its own set of um, of um, moral uh, issues to do with um, the the um, difference between the wealth of countries and their interdependence on one another, such that some people's bodies become enrolled in the biomedicine and healthcare of other of more wealthy peoples. Um, body projects and life projects um, as a way of making a minimal basic living. Um, so I wanted to get connect up those two ideas as substitutive research subjects. Then I wanted to focus on what was happening in animal research because around the area of regenerative medicine, um, it, it was turning out to be the case, there were a few articles published and some initiatives going on that, um, that uh, animal models And this is true in reproductive science, which is an area I've worked on before as well, where animal models just aren't very good scientific models for what's happening in the human. So on the one hand, you're having people putting enormous amounts of effort into humanizing model species. And then on the other hand, um, you have have all, all these people who don't want you to be using animal research. I also was throwing out there the idea of what if we didn't say... Is it more ethical to do the research or more ethical to free animals? And instead we said, what if we listen to everybody? Mm-hmm. What if we listen to people who say it's very ethical to do the research and just say, okay, yes, it is? And we listen to the people who say it would be more ethical not to, you know, to, to, to deconscript these animals. Um, so even if you don't think that's true, what would it be to listen to people in your community who do think that's true? Is there a place where the science could be even better that listened to both, especially seeing as the scientists are saying it's not happening, that it's not the best science to do these in animal models. It's just sort of something that we've got into Um, for all kinds of ethical reasons to do with needing to not do it in humans.
0: And I think Um, that's actually, just to jump in um, for a moment. Sorry. Um, No, no, no. I I just want to mark this because I think this is really, really important. I mean, there's a moment in this chapter where you're fleshing out um, the idea that you just proposed. Um, And, you know, the way I kind of understood it, something like, like, think about the idea of listening and debate, not in terms of the ultimate goal being agreeing with somebody's point of view, but rather, you know, what is it to listen to and to care for and take into account someone's point of view, even when at the end of the day you're not going to agree with them. Agreement, right, um, yes. is not the ultimate goal, and I think that's really important, really potentially transformative. And I just wanted to mark that um, because I think that's something that again has potentially much broader implications than simply um, you know coming from and coming to this particular sort of stem cell research. Sorry. Thank you. That's, that's very, very generous. Um, so, uh,
1: so, uh, I, so, as you say, I wanted to, um, say, you know, and, and I'm not so naive as to think you could always just make these additive rather than the zero sum, but what if the premise was to make it add- additive? What if you start by saying, can we do great ethical science and not use animal bodies for it? Um, because, Many among us wish wish you not to do that, and many many among us wish to do the science as well. And then I and then I said I so I spent a lot of time looking at the work that was being done um, in biovisualization, um, the incredible visualization, real time visualization, the leaps and bounds of, of instrumentation um, improvements in the life sciences at the moment, the leaps and bounds of tissue engineering improvements at the moment and thought about what would happen if they were joined up so that we really put a sort of full court press effort into developing model systems that were as in vivoized as we could get them, but were ultra ultimately in vitro systems. So I'm not talking about fake, I'm talking about things that are built with real human cell lines, um, but that are done with the best kinds of biovisualizations, the best kinds of 3D scaffolding and things, um, so that we actually could do a, a very, very sophisticated version of diseases in a dish. So we already know that these, these diseases in a dish with human stem cell lines for drug discovery are turning out to be very, very helpful. But what if we were able to do things that were to do with um, development, regeneration, that were more systemic to do with systems that have 3D and and temporal components to their biological function? What if we were actually to to say, let's try to move, let's move to to model systems 2.0. Let's just do it. Who would we need to have on board? How would we need to do it? And just think how much impetus we could get from all the people who want the cures all the people who want to free the animals instead of just immediately going to this kind of adversarial you're a terrorist because you you don't you don't you're a kitty and you're a kitty killer how do we get beyond that so um and in general i am extremely as a as a person i'm very as a person as a human being i'm very very interested in a version of mediation that is what what is it what would it be to have the greater moral universe mm-hmm. is there such a so rather than clamping down on your own moral universe just kind of taking the kind of plurality of our of our democracy and then the threat under majoritarian versions of democracy in plur- pluralist societies the threat to minoritarian rights what if we were to try to solve that what if we were to take this approach to things where we Assumed the greater moral universe. Um, So that's where that, that piece of work comes from.
0: Thank you so much, Karis. Uh, thank you for this whole conversation and for the book, um, but also for ending on such, I think, an important and forward-thinking and positive note. And this is the case for both the book and for, I think, this conversation. Now, there's a million, billion aspects of the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about, right? I mean, we could easily spend another few hours. Is there anything, though, in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Not that I can think of right <laughs> Right, so I'll just say then, just read the book, listeners, because um, there's a lot of discussion in there that's really, really useful, that's relevant to all of the things that we've been talking about, and that really pushes on these concepts as well. So I think this is a book that's useful whether or not you're interested in or you imagine yourself to be interested in um, stem cell research, biomedicine. I mean, as I think has hopefully come up in the course of the conversation, there are much broader implications here um, that I think are important for all of us um, who will be listening to this. So Karis, now that the book is out, um, and again, congratulations on, I think, a really important book as well as a really just masterfully produced and written book. What's next for you? What, What do you currently working on. I think you kind of briefly mentioned a couple of projects, um, at the very beginning of our conversation. Um, but would you um, mind talking a little bit about that?
1: Yes, I can just quickly say what my, what my two projects, um, are. the more archival one is asking, um, so in going back to my kind of neurophysiology roots way back when is asking about the, in this era of the mind and the brain, which is something I've remained very interested in, but have done little work on. Um, just a couple of articles, but um, I'm I, I'm interested in how we went from the at the middle of the 20th century in the Cold War period of history. I'm very very interested in where we had this enormous subattentional mind and brain, and the fear the fear of capitalism and the fear of East and West and the threat of communism was that. People, advertising, um, communists would be infiltrating our minds. We're constantly anxious about the subattentional part of our mind. To the current attention economy where everybody has an attention deficit, we basically have no subattentional mind anymore. We do cognitive behavioral therapy rather than, rather than analysis. Um, and we, uh, we, We're all of us are struggling to corral our attention. We all have attention deficits. We can't, we don't know where to put our attentions. So how did we flip from having? Geopolitically, scientifically, and as a society, in terms of cohesion at the personal and interpersonal and and societal levels, how did we flip from having a a threatened subattentional mind to having a threatened multiattentional mind? Uh So that's one project. And then the second, the second project that I'm doing that so that that continues my sort of interest in what's happening in the sciences that compel me, the reproductive, regenerative, and and neuroscience um, sciences that that I find so interesting. Um, And then continuing on my my interest in um, pluralist democratic polities, minoritarian rights, and um, the foundational role of science in all of those, um, I'm doing a, a... Kind of a a project, just looking at how elite scientists um, consider the role of um, science in battling uh, increasing inequality. So that's a primarily interview-based project. It probably will only just be one paper. It might be two, um, whereas the the attention one will be a book. Um, It's a a a question of. So if if you think of of science as being, you know, that thing that what that embodies in some way in modernity, the promise of the enlightenment, the idea that the circumstances of your birth don't matter, regardless of where you come from, you can rise to the top, think of it as a mechanism of meritocracy, something that makes a certain amount of inequality with a basic level playing field, Mm -hmm. um, legitimates that, um, and yet today we see, um, this uh, increasing capitalization of science we see really recalcitrant problems with um, um, gender and ethnicity in relation to practitioners in science and advancement through the sciences in many fields still re- really shockingly recalcitrant um, what where's this coming from what's being done and kind of how what's the state of the world regarding the supposedly foundational relation between democracy and science. So those are my two projects.
0: Well, both of those sound fantastic. Best of luck, Karis, with both of those. I will look forward to hopefully talking with you. Well, definitely reading and hopefully trying to convince you to talk about the Mind and Brain book when that's out. And that just sounds like such an, another really, really important and fascinating book um, that we'll have. And thank you so much for spending the time. It's really been a pleasure. And I'm just very, very grateful.
1: Thank you. Thank you. It was a delight. Thank you.